a Highline podcast. We live in a complicated and fascinating world that invites us to dive deep into its intricacies. Exploring the ideas and events that excite, intrigue, irritate, and confound us is how we graduate our knowledge beyond meme culture. Join us over a cocktail as we expand our understanding and share in the beauty we find along the way. I'm Stephen Torna. I'm Kat Dwyer. And I'm Stephen Henning. Welcome to the Whiskey Bench. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. It has been two weeks since we've recorded. I failed in letting everyone know. I'm sorry for letting you down. Forgive me. Please. Oh, and also thank you for bearing with us. Yeah, yes. and also if you downloaded our our uh, our last episode very early before we caught it, and we sounded all like creepy, deep voiced robots. Um, <laughs> that was also my fault. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't mean to throw you under the bus. I was just saying, like, yeah, thanks and for then you backed us. up. Thanks for bearing after with after you, us. Uh, yeah. you know, drove over me once, but it's all right. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's what I do. You know. I've done the same right. thing. I did. I did. To be fair, post about that. You did. No? You did. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, my friends. Uh, it feels so good to be back. I literally, I, I. Uh, what's the past tense of the verb for forego? I forewent. Nah. You for something was foregone. Foregone. I don't know how you apply. Yeah, how do you it make yourself? it a past tense? Whatever. I did not have my customary Thursday night whiskey because I was saving it for the pod last week and it made me mm. a little sad inside. Mm. Um, yeah, mostly the insides that are used to having uh, whiskey on the stomach because it's so yeah, they're like delicious. Where is our nectar? And honestly, I'm pretty low in this bottle, so <laughs> I got to get a new one here pretty soon. Mm. But. We're drinking something fantastic. I don't know what it yeah, is, but I like it a it lot. It has some peated scotch in it's it. It's great. Oh, does it really? It does. So I haven't had a cocktail since we recorded last. Me too. So dang, it's been a hot second. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a dry two weeks. Heartbreaking. <laughs> yeah, it's rough. Long dry two weeks. <laughs> I mean, like <laughs> I had a beer or two. I actually had a kind of wild weekend. <laughs> uh, last week? Last weekend, yeah. Oh, great. oh, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what are we drinking? Oh, we're drinking something called The Symphony. Oh. It is a variation of The Last Word, which we featured uh, recently. Mm-hmm. I don't remember which episode that was. Does it matter? Go back. It's titled The Last recipe. Word. Yeah. Yeah, The yeah. Last Word. This is a variation of it. Comes out of England. Circa 2016, so it's not an old cocktail. Oh, wow. Yeah. I forget the bartender's name. Sorry, Mr. Bartender. I'm sure you're a beautiful person. I'm pretty impressed with it. It is an ounce of dry gin, and then I did half an ounce of maraschino liqueur, half an ounce of lemon, half an ounce of green chartreuse, which Kat was kind enough to replenish the chartreuse. Uh, stock last week, so thanks, Kat. And then I added a quarter ounce of Lafroig Ten Scotted Peat. Uh, Scotted Peat. Scotted Peated Scotch. Holy <laughs> moly. Scotted Peat. There it is. <laughs> it adds such a nice 
layer. It does. And if you guys can't tell, the only time I actually talk to other human beings is when we record. So it's been two weeks since I've spoken any English, yeah. and that's Stop. why I'm having a hard time. <laughs> Out of practice a little bit, are we? Hmm? Mm, yes. <laughs> Very nice. It's okay. I felt off this entire week. My sister says it's because of electromagnetic energy shifts. Okay. I don't know if that's true. I've been feeling, I, I felt off uh, this week as well, but that, I felt very off. Dang so, age no of worries. Aquarius. No, that happened around New Year's, didn't it? Never I mind. Know. I don't know anything about that. <laughs> Me neither. Whatever. Oh. I do not condone any sort of witchcraft. Uh, astrology. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> All right. All right. Weird Sometimes flex. When you drill down to your birthday, it's. I mean, I've fit the characteristics of a cancer. I tell you that much. I don't know what I am. The sign. I'm born in January. Right. I don't know what I am, but yeah, I don't know either. I'm really bad at that. I have to look it up. Not helpful. Uh, I'm drinking, no. my friends. I'm I'm still on my 11 year old <laughs> Lagavulin whiskey. Uh, I think I have like two pours left in it, so I'm gonna have to replenish the bar. You should go for something different. To be honest, I don't want. Are you gonna to. branch out? Oh, okay. Yeah, right, no, right. fair enough. That's fair. Okay. Let's not get. Too I had Lafroig for a show. while, if you remember, <laughs> and my, you know, my That's staple true. is the sixteen year. I think though, if there's another bottle of this eleven, I'm just gonna pick up two. You know, because I gotta get more. Mm. I, I love this right. stuff. It's so good. Do they sell it at Costco? Can you get it in bulk? Not in Montana. Not in Montana. Oh, they don't do right. liquor. It's only wine and beer at Costco's. That's right. Yeah. Very annoying. That's silly. I don't even understand that annoying government control well yeah but like <laughs> ayo well all right we can leave it at that i guess we now. also have That'd high, be worth exploring. We also have high taxes on alcohol compared to other states that's why alcohol is so cheap in california when you buy it and it's taxed and also yeah. as i understand it an inordinate like inordinately small amount of liquor licenses that's right. Uh, that was the case a few years ago. I believe that has since been changed. Oh, great. Which, uh, if I remember correctly, there were quite a few people in Montana that had acquired and were just holding liquor licenses. And at one point, liquor licenses were like close to a million dollars. And then they opened yeah, up right. um, and allowed more. And that was a big uproar about that. They're like, you can't do that. These are our assets. And the thing is, yeah, is there's all these restaurants that can't really win out against a neighboring restaurant that has a liquor license. Right, right. Because yeah. like a lot of people just won't go to a restaurant if there's not a full Jeez, bar. Jeez, oh, man, sure. if that yeah. is not a microcosm <laughs> to study inflation, I don't know what yeah. is. <laughs> Dang. Yeah. Anyway, I'm also going to be drinking tonight once I finish my whiskey because, it, damn it, it just sounded amazing. I'm going to crack open a- Mountain Man Scotch Ale. How did you know? <gasps> what <laughs> yeah this is like the king of beers from montana hands down i think it's the best beer that montana produces by jeremiah johnson brewing in great falls love what those guys do it's delicious henning knows what but he likes and he, he does sticks with i yes this is absolutely gotta, true next time i come down i'll have to remember to bring some beer from up here there's some beer that you probably haven't had from bozeman that's there's some good beer here. Better than Mountain Man, Ooh. if I may. Blaspheme Challenge the man accepted, of the mountain. Challenge accepted, my friend. <laughs> Cage match. Gladiator. 
to the death. I don't know what I'm saying. Man, what a busy two weeks I've had. I'll tell you guys real quick. I went to Salt Lake City for a weekend, went and saw a metal show That's right. and spent a day at the That's zoo. Right. Uh, that was a great time. Um, my wife came. This was her second metal show in her life. And she enjoyed it. So, That's oh, good. Good. yeah, nice. it was a great time. Was there how what was the concert? What is a metal concert like in uh, the current uh, atmosphere of public events as far as? Are people moshing? Are people wearing oh, masks? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I would say probably half the room was masked. Okay. Um, the bands were not. And the bands, right. like especially Silent Planet, he he made a point to say like, man, it's kind of weird to not be like jumping into the crowd and surfing or like sharing the mic and letting you scream along with right. me. But he's like, you got to just understand I'm in a different city every night. Like I got to play it safer than that. You know, sure. So like spit, sweat, sometimes blood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, yeah, half the room was masked. Otherwise, we were all just packed in. There was no social distancing. Um, right. But the venue was asking. It was more on a volunteer basis, which I thought was weird. But they were asking to see like vaccination cards. You know. Mm-hmm. But they were like, "Don't worry if you don't have it." But it would be kind of nice if we had that that data. You know, I don't know. It was weird. So who was checking for the back? Like when you the venue the security guards? When yeah, you came the through, venue or? was. Yeah, okay. the owner. Because it was in the back. It's it's like in this back room. It was really interesting. It's on uh, the 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 street address for the venue was six 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 State Street. Mm. So they they have this like really like punk rock edgy vibe, and they called it Mark of the Bistro, and it's like a vegan diner. And then you just like go through the diner past the kitchen and then the, like the concert <laughs> venue is back. Like <laughs> a vegan diner that opens into a metal venue yeah, dude. is called Mark so of the Bistro. Mark of the Bistro is the restaurant like, and the um, clever name. Very solid. It's very it's such um, a waste for the vegan 2021. Seems like it'd be like good like barbecue spot. Yeah. Mark of the Beast. I don't know. Like beast. They, they yeah, probably right? pretty quickly like establish themselves. Yeah, they definitely stand out, you know. Like, the music venue yep. is technically, like, they delineate it, so it's called the Beehive. Oh, which was my favorite, you guys, because I kept making a joke. You know that joke in The Office where Andy and Angela are getting, like, planning their wedding with Dwight, and the instructions to get to Shroot Farms is, like, walk until you hear the Beehive, and then turn <laughs> left. Yes. I made that joke a lot. It, uh, it it was <laughs> I can't I made it did it land well in the beautiful city of Salt Lake <laughs> no I I said it way too often and Dixie just kept rolling her eyes <laughs> oh gotcha oh but it was a great show great drive there and back the uh the drive back was really kind of sad because we came back through West Yellowstone and like couldn't see hardly anything. Visibility was probably at like mm-hmm. three or four miles with the smoke content. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. so that was kind of a bummer. But the weekend after, though, I went and recorded a Ravel episode in person with my co-hosts on that show who hadn't met in person before. Kind of like. Oh, it's awesome. Kind oh, nice. of like we all met in person for the first time a few months ago. Yeah. So we went and made an episode of Ravel together in Cody, Wyoming. And then we came back, and then Dixie and I adopted a dog from the shelter. Yeah, yeah your, duck. Your beautiful dog. Oh, 
Duck is such a treasure. I love her. Duck the duck. She hasn't even so. she hasn't even been here <laughs> a full week, and it just feels right. You know. Oh yeah, that's delightful. Great. She's just over a year old. She's a dachshund Labrador mix, which people like mm. to shorten to Doxador, which I think is very powerful. <laughs> Doxador. Um. Yeah, she was like she was already spayed. She was already chipped. She was a stray in the shelter. We we had put her on hold because we were taking that trip to Cody in the morning, and we mm-hmm. came back like thirty minutes before our hold expired to take her home, and they were like. It is a good thing you put her on hold because we've had like seven people ask about her. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, she's such a treasure. I got to tell you guys, my favorite experience so far is coming home from work and the way she just like loses her ever loving mind when she sees me. Like she gets so it's like full on. She's she's wagging her tail so hard that like her full spine is engaged you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's, yeah. there's no way I can come home from work in a bad mood now because I know that's waiting for me. You know? Yeah. That's a gift. Oh. How did, how do the cats get along with, with duck? The, okay. So we had two cats. One now lives, um, with my in-laws and she is living her best life there. So that's basically my in-laws cat now. So we have one cat here in the house. And he's taken a few days to warm up to her, but, um, like she just keeps wanting to play with him mm-hmm. <laughs> and he right. is very skeptical. Um, though like size comparison, she's honestly not all that much bigger than him. Like he's a big cat. She's a small, you know, like dachshund is in her blood. Right. So like, it's hilarious because every time he makes a sound or he moves, she's more scared of him. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Just because he likes keeping that like that composure about him that makes him seem a lot more serious than we know he is. But she right. doesn't know that. She's none the wiser. <laughs> yeah. Oh. And uh how is she as far as training? Oh my gosh. Is, right. Sit, lay down. Yeah, so she shake, play dead. She's, what, what, she's she obviously at? already house trained. We have had zero mm-hmm. accidents in the house. She doesn't chew on anything that she's not supposed to. And, uh, she's like crate trained. She's really good at night. Like she doesn't cry or bark or anything. Like she's just the sweetest little pup. Excellent cuddles for movie night on the couch. Cause she's just mm-hmm. like that perfect size. Ugh, it's so good. Yeah. And she's already figuring out sit and lay down with us. And we're working on come and stay pretty hard just around the living room. And then when we take her on walks and stuff, we're told that we're told by the shelter that she's kind of a repeat offender that shows up in the shelter, um, that she might be kind of an escape artist. So, so we, we play it pretty careful whenever we go outside. Like we've never been outside with her without a leash. And even when we're in the park, we just like run around with her and play like short distance games. You know, we're not playing full on fetch with a tennis ball or anything yet, but it's just a delightful time. How long time. did she stay at other homes for? Does the shelter know? No. So they knew who her owners were because she was chipped. Mm. Um, and she had been at the shelter twice before. And, you know, like part of me thinks, you know, like she's only just over a year old as far as we can tell. So she's like a COVID puppy, you know? Yeah. And my guess is that ex-owners eventually were like, well, she keeps running away, and 
you know, I don't want to assign any motive or anything, but like, I, I she's never. Oh no, she ran away. Exactly. And, Wink. And like, yeah. I've I've never had the feeling that she wants to ditch me. I honestly think that maybe they got bored of her and just started putting her outside in a fenced yard, and she figured out how to navigate the yard and the fence. Hmm. Because you said she was already chipped. Yeah. Right. 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 So that leads me to think that whoever had her chip just. Yeah. Was basically like, oh no, she well, ran away. Because even the shelter like got in contact with them, like days or weeks before Dixie and I adopted her, and they were like, hey, just so you know, your dog is here, you know, because we know that because she's chipped, and they just never right. contacted them back. Oh, they didn't oh, want her. Yeah. yeah, which makes me so I'm sure, sad because like, she's just a perfect dog. I love her so much. Yeah. And I'm sure the longer, like, once you guys have her for a good chunk of time, and she's comfortable, like, she'll. She won't want to run away. Yeah. You know, yeah, like it'll be exactly you'll be able to build more trust with her. Well, so. and the other thing is like we don't have a yard. We're in a townhouse. Right. So like to to do to do the best honor to our HOA system, like she still she has to be on a leash whenever she's outside on our property, which we really don't have a problem with. Right. Like take her out to go to the bathroom, pick up after her. And then we just we've been taking her on two walks a day, which is great for both Dixie and I. So just like pretty major life shift that has just all around been very very healthy so far sweet that's excellent that's great. loving it cheers to duck yeah duck the duck dog. newton duck. <laughs> that's her name <laughs> solid beautiful strong name uh anything crazy going on with you cat oh i'm just busy. yeah i guess i blabbed on a bit so it's work same. Oh, it's all just good. busy. It's just, you said you had a crazy weekend yeah. last weekend. Anything you want to share? <laughs> oh, I just had fun. I just had fun. <laughs> I just had, I just had fun. <laughs> people over. Um, I had some people Whoa. over, which was great. And then um, one cool thing. So a film that I worked on for Perk, uh, called Elk in Paradise, was mm. featured in the Bozeman Film Festival. Hey, which nice. happened last week. Sweet. Yeah. So I rode my bike all kinds of hungover to the <laughs> Emerson Fun. and watched my film. And frankly, like it was really it was a cool experience. It was awesome. Kind of neat to see my name is in the credits. So it was kind of cool to see that on a screen. Oh, it was nice. That's awesome. Teared up a little bit because Holly and I worked really Holly Fretwell oh, so and I worked really hard on that. So. Yeah. And then on uh, Sunday, I hiked Emigrant Peak, nice. which is a Whoa. real ass kicker of a hike. <laughs> and it was funny. I was like, I had been rallying my hiking buddies to like do that all summer. And obviously with the wildfires and with smoke, like we kept putting it off because um, you want to have good vis- visibility when you get to that top oh, yeah. of that right like and it's not the kind of hike that you're just gonna like try again the next weekend like it's hard <laughs> so anyway we waited and last sunday was absolutely perfect there was not very much smoke good visibility blue skies and um yeah it was like i knew it was gonna be hard but i was like walking strangely for like two days afterwards <laughs> because my legs were so short yeah and to be honest, I got to, you gain about 5,000 feet, maybe a little over that in just under four miles. So like, it's just this relentless uphill. And, mm-hmm. um, and frankly, I didn't feel super tired from like when we got to the summit, I wasn't 
tired. I was by the time there's like a series of false summits because you're kind of just scrambling up this rocky mm-hmm. peak towards the end. And as we got closer and closer to the actual summit, like I was kind of reminded of my fear of heights and made it all the way to the top. But there was definitely like a couple. The very last stretch is this kind of narrow. I mean, it's all very doable, but like a narrow catwalk with just like drop offs on either side. And it's like the last little like spine you're walking up until you get to the more level peak. Mm. And um, yeah, I had like a moment where I like paused before that and was like, Okay, here we go. (laughs) That's a good time to remember uh, that fear. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, and then the downhill was brutal because I mean, that was probably the worst part was just like silty, sandy, really steep incline. You know, I mean, it was just like you were uh, it took a lot of concentration and like muscle to not like slip and fall. So that part was kind of exhausting, but it was totally awesome. So and I'm super glad I did it. Right on. Well yeah. done. Congratulations on the film, too. Man. Yeah. Go watch it. It's on the Perk website, perc.org. You can find Sweet. it on our homepage. Love it. It's like a 12 minute little film. It's great. It's also got accepted into the Wildlife Conservation Film Festival, which is in New York City. Ooh. Um, which is happening like October, uh, I think 14th through like the 21st. It's like this week long thing. Um, well done. So that's pretty Are neat. they going to fly you out there for a work trip? No. Oh, okay. That's sad. <laughs> but our, my CEO and our VP of development are going. No, so. that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be good. It's Amazing. Sad. Excellent. Torna, what's your update? And you, Two Torna? Weeks? Uh, I worked 12 of the last 14 days that we've been gone. I would expect nothing and, less from uh, you, my friend. Right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the highlight of the last two weeks was swinging into cats for a little garden party. Yeah. Short-lived. And the low point of the week was <laughs> forgetting to get a taco while I was at Cat's Garden Party. Oh, so. I know. <laughs> you missed those good spicy uh, tacos. I, I was... I got done with work, swung over, and then I had to go to a work meeting at like 7. So it was short-lived, but yeah. it was nice. Thank you. Just keep them busy, trying to catch up. Well done. Yeah, you have a ton of projects, right? Yes. Absolutely. Man. Yep. So, and a broken cat. back. And a broken back. Yeah, he's in a back brace tonight, uh, ladies and gentlemen. So, <laughs> Are you really? I didn't know that. Oh. Yeah, yeah. remember how I hurt my back, like, I don't know, 12 weeks ago? Yeah, it's just like, still hurts. Still hurts. Oh. And still I just hurts. keep hurting it, because... Oh. I, yeah. yeah. Sorry. It's just the way things go, you know? Sorry. I'll catch up. That's rough. No, nah, it's not. Got to get you on a good stretching routine. I have PT that I do every day. Okay, good. Which good. is great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then hopefully the back brace will help or anything like that. Yeah, so. it should. In theory, guys. Excellent. In theory, if I can catch up. I would love to take the entire month of December off. Oh my gosh, you should Because then maybe my back will That would be sweet. Yeah. Because otherwise, I think it's going to get worse. That would be sweet. Yeah, you need to take, give your body time to heal. But I have to catch up. You should try to eat uh, anti-inflammatory foods. Like turmeric. Yeah, that would help. Turmeric and black Lots pepper. Lots of curries. Yeah, Because you have to and have other the, things. Apparently, but... if you take the black pepper, it helps you absorb the nutrients of the turmeric better. 
Is that right? Yeah. I didn't know that. Also, I'm saying turmeric really weird. Turmeric. On purpose. Turmeric. Okay. <laughs> On purpose. All right. Turmer- I guess this is old news. Turmeric. <laughs> I would help. I always say turmeric. I don't nice. know what's proper. I say turmeric. Nice. Turmeric. I'm going for it, guys. Uh, I'm, speaking I'm of cracking. which, randomly, there's a cocktail that I want to make soon that involves coconut milk and turmeric. Wow. And some other tasty ingredients. Wild. And nice. And some green chartreuse. That sounds good. I just got to find lime leaves. Oh, that might be hard hmm. here. It might be impossible here, but. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Although we've got the, it's not the same. We've got that little dinky lime tree in our house. <laughs> yeah. You just take that. some like, you know. <laughs> there you go. Little tiny lime leaves. I like this cocktail so much. I think we might have to have a second one yeah, tonight. Okay. I got ingredients. So we good. All right. Well, we mentioned how smoky it's been right oh yeah a little bit of smoke in the yeah. drinks <clears throat> yeah i'm cracking the beer face right oh oh there it is <laughs> delightful sound <laughs> all right bookkeeping uh is over Book- we're all caught up bookkeeping is officially over how wow, many minutes 20 some we? minutes we, anyway we, we gotta like tighten 20, up our 20 book minutes keep, bookkeeping no, no. no all right I guess, yeah, if there's podcasts that are 25 hours long, then I suppose right. we can have like an hour long episode. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, tonight I think we wanted to talk about wildfires. Specifically wildfire management or just in general? I was planning on discussing the wildfire crisis and forest management. Excellent. Love um, that. In the West. Yes. Of the United States. Obviously, it's been a smoky summer. It's been mm-hmm. pretty torturous here. California's finally being inundated. Their fire season's in full swing. Um, yep. This is their worst month, generally. September and October are worse in that region. Yeah, because um, there's, I mean, yeah, we don't, they, I still say we because I'm from there, <laughs> but they don't have much of a uh, rainy season. Mm-hmm. So. It often can just be like very, very dry by that time of year. Yeah. So big fires burning there. Thankfully, it, Tahoe was saved. But uh, right. yeah, that was a close call, um, wasn't it? It sure was. I know. I have family who have cabins Ugh. up there that had to leave and hope it stood. Did but, I um, see correctly that the fire? Well, I haven't seen now in like a week, but the fire burning in California is like the largest they've had. The that we're Dixie aware the Dixie fire f- is the second largest second that largest. the state has ever had. 640,000? 960,000. So last I saw it was 640 yeah. something thousand. Okay. It's 86% contained though. So that's oh. that's pretty good. And, and then last I saw it was 40% contained. So that's good. Yes. That's like in the last four days. Five They're days? making progress. Yeah. And good. then then there's the Caldor fire, which is the one that was threatening the Tahoe National Forest mm-hmm. or well to the Tahoe region. Um, and that's burned over 200,000 acres, and that's one's like about 70% contained. So mm-hmm. improving. But um, I think a lot of people have kind of assumed that this is just the new normal, and it's something that we have to just accept. Um, and serious people who study the issue no longer try to float this narrative, but politicians still do. Um, Biden just the other day was in the Boise area and and did it was there for a few different reasons, but he was touring uh, while well, being briefed on wildfires in that part of the country. And 
the soundbite that got picked up by the media was, you know, boy, this really tells us what we need to do about climate change. You know, it's only going to get worse. Um, And that's kind of the standard talking point that you hear from politicians, um, which I guess you can't really expect much like nuance with politicians, but um, it's definitely a more nuanced issue than that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I thought we could kind of dive into what has really led us to the state we're in now where we have larger and hotter wildfires year after year. And so certainly uh, climate change has, it's kind of generally accepted that climate change has extended dry seasons Mm. in the West and, Mm. and therefore that has extended fire seasons. Mm -hmm. Um, But a study by forest service scientists found that they've attributed climate change for accounting to just 14% of the influence of more destructive wildfires. And, and they weighed more heavily um, other impacts like uh, live fuel, Uh, live Mm -hmm. fuel in that study accounts for closer to 53%. And so, yeah. And so that's, and that's something that um, a lot of the data I'll be pulling tonight is from a report that Perk produced uh, this spring called Fix America's Forests, um, and it offers eight ideas for the Forest Service to implement um, to improve how we address wildfires and how we manage our forests. But it's it's in and it's largely understood like within the Forest Service with with fire or with forest ecologists with with people who really study this issue that like our approach to forest management has created the problem that we're dealing with today. Mm-hmm. We basically spent over a century implementing a policy of fire suppression where we put out every fire when it started and and that disrupted natural fire cycles. There used to be more numerous lower intensity fires. Mm-hmm. Um wildfire is an important part of a forest ecosystem. It has to happen. It's healthy. It's healthy for the plant life. It's healthy for the animal life. Like it, it's important for um, those ecosystems. And our approach to suppressing fire distorted those fire cycles and allowed for more uh, forest product and and essentially fuel to build up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that when like Trump was president, he talked about like raking the forests. You know, everybody <laughs> laughed at him and right. and was like, "Oh, he's a climate denier, and that's insane." But sure, he's an idiot. But like, ultimately, it it it's true. We do need we don't need to rake the forest, but we we need to change our approach to how we manage the right. forest. Right, and so. F- Proactive forest management is now needed because we've essentially created a mess uh, by disrupting fire cycles. Um, And frankly, I think the only kind of our only solution to stopping this 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 crisis of like larger and hotter wildfires is to proactively thin Mm -hmm. forests and 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 frankly, when in some instances allow these fires to just burn and it's going to be kind of a painful process in some aspects and certainly a time-consuming and expensive process but it's kind of our only option at this point or we or we keep maintaining the same approach and Mm -hmm. 
like dig in our heels and allow this this problem to get bigger and bigger. And mm. that obviously is not a good solution. Um, and so we'll all pause there and y'all can jump in or ask questions. And- We're going to take a quick break, then we'll be back to our conversation. If you like what you're hearing, the best way to tell us about it would be on Apple Podcasts. There you can leave us a five-star rating and a one or two sentence review to help others find the show. Thank you to Reagan James for the use of our theme music, The Habit, off her album, Message. Find her work on Spotify and Apple Music. And thanks to Highline Media Network for having us as a founding podcast. Here's a quick preview of a recent episode from our sister show, The N2 Podcast. And it's that I got this unusual gift of finding out that my love has an incurable autoimmune disease that will shorten her life by up to 20 years. That seems like an odd gift, but. My stupid, dumb, giant tattoo on my ribs. Mm. I have grown to love so much Mm. over the years. You know? Yeah, freaking nerd. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me what you like about me. Don't be a dude. Oh yeah? Yeah. Name 10 things about Katie that you like then. Oh yeah, you like me? Why don't you marry me, (laughs) sucker? Name her first album. Yeah. (laughs) And now, back to our conversation. I guess first thing talking about wildfire and management. As we had mentioned, there's a problem that is uh, obviously very easy to identify. And then other political topics get attached to it, i.e., this is happening because of climate change. Therefore, to fix this, we need to fix climate change right and that's i would say just fundamentally incorrect it's hey there's a problem with wildfire and even if seasons are being extended and all these things there are ways to prevent the wildfire they're separate things is what i'm trying to say yeah and it, and so I th- we need to kind of dive into okay whether or not climate change was happening like the way that we've been managing the forest, we would still have the same problem. Right. And I I think a good way to frame it is that climate change has exacerbated the problem, Mm -hmm. but the problem, to your point, exists regardless. Regardless, exactly. And the reality is, if we want to prevent a catastrophic fire from happening in X region in the West next summer, Coercing people to buy electric vehicles isn't going to stop that, right? Right, like, exactly. There like are two long, problems that, yeah, are, that, long, that can be addressed simultaneously. Right. Long-term solutions to anthropogenic climate change are a valid thing that we should figure out, right? But we need short-term solutions to our wildfire crisis. And, and yes, those are two related but separate things in terms of policy for mm-hmm. sure, right? Exactly. Yeah. And and again, I think it is this like there's a difference between like the long term and the short term here. And and the wildfire issue requires like immediate action and we need we need short term solutions to this, mm-hmm. right? Because you know, or, or or we just let everything fucking burn, right? But like these fires have gotten so there's so much fuel buildup that the fires have gotten so hot 
that they are in some instances no longer healthy for the forest ecosystem because they're burning too hot that like they're eviscerating some plant life and it actually can't regenerate. Right. And that's a problem. And so I don't, I feel like we're going to be all over the place here, but can we start maybe with fundamentals, like basics of understanding fire and I guess flora and fauna. But so to your point, like we have these fires that are burning really, really hot, but that wasn't always an issue in the past because a lot of these old growth trees can withstand a wildfire. Like they can live through a, a massive wire wildfire burning through old oaks and things like that. So we're talking about California, mm-hmm. uh, oak trees and things like that. Um, the redwoods. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A fire could burn through in the past and all those trees would be fine. And then you have um, certain plants that are kind of like fire resistant, hardy plants. Yeah. They're adapted. They're fire adapted and they need fire. Right. right exactly. To help and then regenerate. Oaks, yeah. You know, fire is necessary for uh, acorns. Same thing with the pine here. Right. Fire is mm-hmm. necessary to spread the seed and grow more trees. Right. So it's a very natural thing. Right. But when the fire's too hot. It just kills the trees that would have lived otherwise. And 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 what determines whether or not what determines how like intense a fire is going to be is the amount of fuel for it to feed on. Mm -hmm. So fires in the past haven't been as intense as they are today because there is a buildup of fuel in our forests today. So now they they have more fuel to feed on and they're growing bigger Um, and. And that is entirely the result of human action of suppressing the more numerous low intensity fires. Mm -hmm. And because it is going to it's going to burn at some point. Right. And if we aren't going to have more numerous low intense fires, then we're going to have. More concentrated, larger fires. And the other thing, too, that I think a lot of people don't realize is small fires with relatively low amount of fuel are more predictable and easier to track whereas you start getting these big fires they're creating their own weather right they're shifting directions they're burning mm-hmm. incredibly fast i mean this year i think there's some fires that are moving at close to 30 miles an hour i mean and creating almost like a uh, this might not be the right word but like a to your point about creating their own weather, like creating like Fire a tornadoes? Cy- like a cyclone. <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Um, so that's right. Crazy stuff. Um, and then at that point, you know, right now, the approach to wildfire, as you mentioned, is just like attack and destroy any fire that pops up. And with these giant fires and being unpredictable and moving so fast, I mean, those poor firefighters, they're getting thrown into stuff that is just horrifyingly dangerous sure yeah. fighting those massive fires yeah i think it's also worth noting too that like the last statistic i saw on this was somewhere around like 80 percent plus of fires in the west are man made or started by by mm-hmm. human error right or right. negligence mm-hmm. and and so you know, there's a question there, like if it's not started naturally, like, should we let that burn? Um, but I think, again, we've created such a mess that. Um, that we 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 have to we have to address 
um, we have to address the challenge and we have to, frankly, I mean, it's not a popular opinion and there's a lot of people who are kind of divergent on that, but like, I, I fully think, and it's, I think like the data and the science support it, like we do have to do active forest management, but I also sometimes think like, even if it's a fire started by a human being, if it's not in, if it's not near communities, we might need to just let it burn. Right. And That's so, a very unpopular well, opinion, though. I'll I actually, disclaimer. I hundred percent agree with that. But that type of uh, viewpoint requires a foundation, which I think is what we're going to dive into deeper here shortly, of understanding the needs of what a forest requires and. When a fire like that starts having resources and plans in place to say, okay, this started, that's unfortunate, but now can we manage it and use it as an opportunity to do some essential management? Like, let it burn. I see what you mean. And then try to like control it almost like an impromptu control and burn be like, or okay, something. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Like that's how so can complicated you... though. Like, and right. I, and I, I am not like a, a, a fire management expert, you know, mm-hmm. like you basically, you have to be like certified to be able to do controlled burns. Cause it is such a, a complicated thing right. to manage. But they've been doing controlled burns for a very long time. Oh, sure. Yeah. Like human beings have been doing that for thousands of years. Yeah, sure. Um, totally. And thousands of years within the United States, mm-hmm. indigenous people, which is a whole other thing I want to talk about tonight is indigenous fire management, essentially. Totally. Yeah. Um, and their views on that and mm-hmm. and and kind of the tradition uh, within various tribes, the, their traditions and what their perspective of, of fire burning and things like yeah. that. And I believe this was. Uh, yeah, anyway, we'll get into that later. But. We can get into that now. It doesn't matter, but um, I guess one thing, too, is I think people have a weird fear of fire. Like, not a weird, obviously, fire can hurt you, but, like. American culture, for sure. Smokey the Bear, like. Right. A fire starts in the in the woods, and, like, that's evil. You have to put it out. Yeah. Right. Well, right. So, that, I mean, that Smokey the Bear is the product of <laughs> right. the Forest Service's approach to of fire suppression Which, for the last is, century. What was that, 80 years ago, or has it been more? No, it's been longer than that. <sighs> yeah. It's crazy. Um, but, well, at least the, I don't know when Smokey the Bear emerged. Maybe it was about 80 years ago. But the the Forest Service's approach of fire suppression has been, for like, over a century. It's good, um, it's good marketing right there. Yeah. It fucking was. That's right. Um, um, and I forget. I should. I should look this up. But I forget what fire it was. But there was a massive fire out in the west. I think it burned through like. I want to say it burned through like Idaho and Montana and Oregon, and it was massive, like mm-hmm. multi-state, and like at the roughly turn of the century, and that was something that like terrified people understandably it was like you know fire can hurt you obviously it can like destroy everything you have um so that terrified people and that was when the forest service well when the government was like we have to do something to prevent fires like this from happening Mm -hmm. um and and that and then there was kind of this cultural shift in our approach towards yeah. wildfire update mm-hmm. um and we've been putting them out ever since smoky the bear was born on august 9th 1944 mm. oh okay there you okay. go there you go there you was go. that part of what 
1944. I wonder if it was like a weird part of the war effort. Um, mm. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Anyway, yeah, so I think there's kind of a fear of, of fire that shouldn't necessarily be there and talking about indigenous, indigenous um, fire management and things like that. What kind of got me down this rabbit trail was a video that I think you shared on Twitter talking about wildfire management and they had discussed just brief, I mean, just in passing that there are um, reports of basically wildfires burning in like cave drawings and mm, um, yeah. suggesting that obviously it's something that's been happening in the area forever. Um, and I think they made the argument that fires that we can't even fathom the size of were happening yeah, in the not so far past um, in the scheme of things, which helps always put some perspective in it. But moving into more recent history, the last 200 years, 250 years, um, and uh, indigenous people, the indigenous people of North America have been doing controlled firefighting for a long time. And actually, in California specifically, with oaks, I mean, it was a huge food source. There's evidence that they were doing controlled fire and burning and managing. Oh, sure. Yeah. All that. That includes all of the berry crops, things like that. The tribes on the Great Plains, they mm-hmm. they, they utilized fire to, for, to like clear areas to then cultivate for, yep. for tribes that were more sedentary. They'd use that to, to then, you know, cultivate fields mm-hmm. and, and raise crops and They'd use it. There is even out in this part of the country in Montana, they would use fire to even hunt uh, buffalo. Mm-hmm. Yep. They start fires and like push. use that to exactly. Yeah. Kind of herd buffalo off of like buttes, I guess, mm-hmm. um, which would typically mean like a shit ton of buffalo would yeah, die. Yeah. yeah. Buffalo, but- <laughs> buffalo jumps and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. But they um, use fire to help manage yep. that. So, yeah, fire has always been a part of like. Just, just human, yes, survivability. Exactly. Right? And this was this was something too. Um, when I was researching it the last couple of weeks, some modern research has been spurred by uh, indigenous tradition, um, specifically out of I think it's the Rogue River tribe in Oregon, and they have some uh, tradition that says that they would start fires on the hills and the bluffs to uh to call in the salmon which kind of got people thinking about like what that could possibly mean and they've done a bunch of research on understanding wildfires specifically and how even though wildfires can be a really horrible thing they're usually happening in the hotter months and with that kind of smoke cover it actually can cool the rivers which is helpful for spawning salmon and the salamanders oh, that live in the rivers and so they were like, is this a thing that would really happen? Mm. And this, this harkens back to my whole, like, respecting ancient cultures. Like, they didn't know why it was helping, but they knew. It worked. It worked. Mm. And it doesn't matter why. Yeah, that's it fascinating. Worked. And so it was really cool. It spurred some modern research on it and yeah. kind of seeing, like, oh, well, is this actually good for river ecosystems? Yeah. And, and it yeah. is. And then also from other indigenous tradition fires would be lit to fumigate trees essentially and so there's multiple layers of a canopy mm-hmm. and i think there's research currently going on this but thinking that part of forest management is insect control and fires can actually fumigate and control for, insect growth for sure well that's a whole problem with how dense the forests have gotten yeah they've 
part of the challenge with that is it leads to um, greater tree mortality because, they, I mean, they literally will be like crowded yeah, to death, exactly. right? Um, and then it also makes them more susceptible to infestation and to disease. Mm-hmm. And, um, and here, the beetle problem for decades right. has been a huge problem. <laughs> right. The Forest Service estimates that, well, this was back in 2015, so the number is probably higher now, but that there are 6.3 million dead trees standing in Western forests. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them, a lot of that is from infestation and disease and, and sort of this overcrowding <laughs> challenge. There's um, a stupid joke in there somewhere about trees should be social distancing for their health, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should, we have to help them social distance. <laughs> Um, uh, they won't move cringe. themselves. I think it's, <laughs> yeah. I think it's. I think it's a part of a part of this story too. Is that um, there certainly was a period of time in Western states where we were uh, like logging more, right? Mm-hmm. And then there was kind of an environmental movement the, to move away from yeah. that, and a lot of a lot of um, well, there's a twofold economic problem. One, a lot of the logging infrastructure no longer exists mm-hmm. in some of these regions um so there isn't like there that makes it more expensive right to to remove this excess fuel um and two a lot of the challenge now with crowded forests is that the 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 trees that need to be removed are small diameter trees which don't have a lot of economic value right and there are some innovative people that are figuring right. out how to create oh i forget the term for it but like kind of this almost like a composite timber that's made from instead of just I, I don't know how you get a plank from a giant tree but instead of just taking so like creating a plank of wood from one chunk of tree it's more mm-hmm. like it's they're combining material from from lots of small diameter trees that makes sense sheet goods uh there's a company in montana that i think is doing some sort of composite and resin hmm. sheeting of some sort okay cool um which is so it's it's like a burgeoning market and yeah, people yeah. are realizing that like it would be great if we can make this economically viable right mm-hmm. but um but so i think you know because when i when i talk about this issue with my father he gets like really angry and defensive because you know he's like we didn't have fires that were this big bef- like a couple decades ago when i was a kid and it's because we logged you know and like and then the environmentalists came in and they screwed it all up because they stopped the logging and like it's like half accurate, you know. Right. It seems like there's but, a healthy balance somewhere in the middle between exactly. like we're over logging and just like killing the growth of a forest versus like we're not doing right. anything and now the the forest is killing itself by being overcrowded and disrupting its own natural yeah. cycle. Yeah, exa- right. exactly. And, exactly. Yeah. And if we're and not going to let fire do the thinning work, then why don't we with our logging work, you know? Right. And I think that's the other cultural challenge that we're faced with now where like the environmental movement for decades made it clear that like human beings shouldn't, that logging is bad, that removing any products from the forest is bad and that, you know, we should be purists and just not touch nature. But we are touching nature by putting out fires, right? Like we are, right? Exactly. And and in some areas, like people live there and we have to put them out. Yeah. Speaking of touching um, nature, that's. That's my one like vocab word that I knew coming into this was the wooey. There it right? is. <laughs> hey, I get to drop my one tiny fact. 
<laughs> what does it stand for again, Henning? Share with Wilderness the- Urban <laughs> Interface, my friend. Wildland. God urban damn it. Interface. I even but got yeah. that. <laughs> Close. <laughs> Dang it. What is that? Uh, four letters. You got three. It's a 75. Good job. <laughs> I did not mean to say that in a bitchy way. I'm so I'm disappointed sorry. in myself. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, but that and that is I'm meandering a little bit, but like, yes, the wooey thing is a very real challenge. And ultimately, like if people are going to live there, you know, I don't think there's any ethical way to like round people up and make them not live in these communities any longer. And I would like to live in the wooey, too. It's beautiful. Right. Mm -hmm. But it take you're taking on increased risk. That's a whole other thing I'd like to go down. But I'll just finish my a point I was going to make that like culturally we have to. I think a lot of people when they hear forest restoration, they think like big logging companies are going to come in and clear cut. And that's not what anyone's talking about. Mm-hmm. And like when Chris French was on our webinar this summer with Perk, talk, who's a deputy chief at the Forest Service talking about this mm. stuff. You know, he's not advocating clear cutting forests. There's there's a scientific way to to manage forests so that they're healthy. And I think there's a really big misperception. Um, there's a restoration project happening up by uh, uh, Sacagawea right now mm-hmm. um, by, around Fairy Lake. And I'm on this like ridiculous. It's like a Twitter microcosm on the the the, the Bozeman listserv. <laughs> it's like a hellscape, but also hilarious. But um, every now and then someone's just like, can I get a ride? But like most of the time it's like, <laughs> like people like wanting to kill each other. But they, um, <clears throat> these people were complaining about the project up there, you know, and and I think there's a misperception about what a healthy forest looks like. And we have this idea now that it's this like dense thing. And in reality, like a forest where like trees are kind of optimal and, and it, it depends. Certain tree types have longer fire cycles, like maybe they don't burn for 100 years. Other forest types burn every 50 years. Right. So mm-hmm. there's nuance there and there's differences in different tree types and regions. But we have this image in our mind that like a dense forest is healthy. And the reality is it isn't. And I mm. think culturally we have to like accept that. And acknowledge and like trust that like when we talk about forest restoration, we're not talking about like clear cutting forests. We're just talking about leading yeah. them back to a more optimal. Because when you yeah. know when we talk about Montanan or Californian forests, it's not like we're talking about like the thick Amazonian jungle forests. <laughs> like, I, I'm like a rainforest. Yeah. Like yeah. I wonder if that is even Most part of the misconception. Is like we I don't know. There's like one picture that is conjured up in your mind whenever you think forest. And you're like, ah, we must make it like that. Well, there's definitely like city dweller environmentalists that frankly, like, don't know what they're talking about mm. with this kind of stuff, too. Mm. And that might be the image that they have in their mind. <laughs> right, like, right. I don't mean to be insulting, right. but, you know, um, well, so sp- but there's also different like the lodgepole pine forest is very different than like a redwood totally. forest. Mm-hmm. Right. And they have different fire cycles. Totally. and densities that are healthy and yeah and they're in different regions there's different different climates yeah different wildlife different bushes shrubs yeah all these things are all part of the forest right yeah for sure different mushrooms different decomposers mm-hmm. that are all a part of this part ecosystem. of that ecosystem right exactly mm-hmm. yeah hmm. ecology is very complicated guys it is <laughs> 
Henning, what were you about to well, just so say? Well, so speaking of those urban dwellers who are in the wooey, like, because I wanted to talk about the, the risk factor of choosing to mm-hmm. live in areas like that. Yeah. And like, I guess the main thing, I don't know, I don't even know if I have like a, a, a well thought out like point to make. I'm just, I'm frustrated when people who choose to lo- live in the wooey are like, I don't know if it's a fake sense of like entitlement or they're just like flabbergasted by the fact that their insurance costs a lot more. Well, no. Okay. So this is a great conversation. Yes, to have, I have actually. some thoughts on this so as well. What's really interesting is that depends on the area, but in California in particular, basically, uh, uh, oh God, what is it called? The Cal CDI. Is that right? Yeah. California Department of Insurance, I believe manages so state agency manages insurance markets and they have created a cap on how high premiums can go Mm -hmm. and so basically what they've done is they've artificially deflated insurance premiums in the wooey which creates an incentive for people to move there because they don't realize the full val, like they don't have the the full risk is not monetized, so mm. they don't understand the full risk right. that they're taking because that price is subsidized by the government. And what this now in this new era of catastrophic, larger, hotter wildfires, insurance markets are actually leaving, or insurers, I should say, are leaving the state. Because they can't afford to insure these homes mm-hmm. because no one's paying an accurate premium for it. And there <laughs> are going to be losses and they can't recoup. So people, so insurers are leaving the state because the state is subsidizing it and encouraging people to live in places that are risky. And, and then as a result, those people are forced to like buy the state insurance, which is shitty naturally. <laughs> and, um, and it's a total mess. And, uh, and, and the market solution is allow the insurance to accurately reflect the risk people are mm-hmm. taking and maybe people won't keep building in these fire prone areas. So I want to add to this because um, this is very interesting to me. Uh, another problem is that in some areas, those wooey boundaries, is wooey boundary an oxymoron? Interface. An interface boundary. Maybe. <laughs> it might be. I okay. don't know. So, <laughs> maybe. When concerning the wooey, um, <laughs> there is incentive for people to move there in a lot of areas because oftentimes it's more affordable to buy land in these interfaces than it is to buy in an urban setting. Totally. So, there's an incentive for people that can't afford the urban setting to go to these areas. If insurance is subsidized and things like that, they're not able to, like you said, accurately understand the risk associated with it. Right. And insurance being subsidized is awful because there is a market solution to it. People hark on insurance. They're like, my insurance sucks. Like, they're crooks, whatever. Insurance is incredible. Like, I don't think people realize we live in a time where you can insure something. Like history right. has never, you, you were not assured of anything. It was right? a brilliant tool for sure. Yeah. Someone took on massive risk and reaped massive benefits for that risk. So insurance is great in many cases, but insurance companies are incentivized, positively incentivized 
to help you find a solution to living in a wooey yeah, they area. don't want your property to burn. They don't. That's not. <laughs> That's there's no incentive loss. for them. And in California, it's a loss for them. That's why they're leaving exactly. the market. Exactly. Yeah. But there are there are free market private groups that are working on developing data collection to assess risk and then create plans for different areas where they can work with homeowners to say, hey, this is the kind of land management that you need. If you have a 10 acre plot, hey, you need to clear uh, 100 yards within any structure we recommend this that's going to help your premium here are materials that reduce the risk of um you know ember ignition and things like that which is a common issue even if you have a metal roof like embers will get under a deck and can ignite a house from underneath all of these have to be assessed they'll then work with builders to promote hey here's really great fire resistant materials mm-hmm. all of these things encompassed are helping people lower the risk associated with living in these areas. Homeowner wins, insurance companies win, builders win, but that is not the case if there's subsidy involved. Right. And uh, Colorado is a state um, that has historically, well, in the last, I think historically, at least in the recent history, has allowed insurers to accurately set premiums to reflect risk true risk and the state has incentives like that you know to help to to incentivize homeowners to make their homes more fire resistant but unfortunately i i don't know where this has gone but last time i was looking into this they were like considering the california the cdi model and it was like <laughs> no, don't do it, you know, because like clearly this isn't actually working in California. It's creating like a total problem. Um, And also it's terrible. California is just like this never ending gift of bad examples of bad governance. But but zoning is paradise and hell. It really is. is, (laughs) Yeah. Zoning restrictions in cities. It's it's being argued to your point, Torna, that zoning restrictions have, well, that, that's obvious. Zoning restrictions have made building in California incredibly difficult. The whole NIMBY, not in my backyard mm-hmm. movement has made it really difficult, um, which FYI, most NIMBY people are like upper echelon, like wealthy liberals that drive Teslas and like live in the hills and, you know, whatever. But anyway, and they like, like you want to build they, an affordable Housing complex next to me? Yeah. No, that has to like go what? down on the flats in Oakland. Yeah. Put them so, with the other filth. Yeah. So it's <laughs> terrible. So anyways, so building, it, because a lot of government restriction in California has added to or created really the housing crisis um, and made housing totally unaffordable. And it has pushed people mm-hmm. into the wooey. Um, and then on top of that, when they're assessing whether it makes sense to move there, their insurance is subsidized and they don't realize the full risk that they're taking. I mean, some people are I, like building again on burn sites, which yeah. I guess maybe it's burned, so it's not going to burn again for a while. Mm. But I mean, people are just negatively incentivized, right? Left mm-hmm. and right. So even my insurance take was mm. off base. Dang it. I don't think it was Well, it? no, I just, I, I, made, I made the assertion <laughs> that it was wildly expensive. But I I had failed to factor the the subsidy subsidy whatever that word is subsidation factor yeah. subsidies 
But but no, but you are correct in saying that like it ima- is expensive. It, imagine if the subsidies weren't there and some person was building a house. Right. Yeah, okay. Not yeah. clearing it. It's right. a traditional house with you yeah. know wood and and asphalt. You know all this stuff. Like I I can't even guess a number. I have well, no I mean, idea it, what it they wouldn't would be able to afford it. Yeah. I mean that, and, and that's so, where I talk about this with my dad, and he gets so mad at me, and he's like, <laughs> "No, like it's." They're not being subsidized. Like, it's too expensive, and the insurers are ripping people off. And it's like, Dad, they're leaving the fucking market not because they hate people. They're leaving because they can't afford it. Like, right. you know, and, and yeah. So it's, Cause they have a, it is expensive, can, but it in, should be more expensive because they have a business. Insurers have a to make. portfolio. Right. Of course. Yeah. 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 yeah it's, they have to remain know, a business. And as people, they have incentives themselves. Yeah. You'd think my dad wouldn't need to hear that, but sometimes he does. <laughs> sometimes. Hey. God love him. <laughs> oh, I, I got to re- be reminded of a lot more things than Mr. Dwyer does. So I. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. I think he's all right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I wonder, and I don't know if this is happening, but what happens to a person who has some sort of subsidized insurance? They're like, okay, I can afford this insurance. And then the insurance company leaves Backs the out. state. Are they just left high and dry? Then they have to take get take the state plan. Oh, they have which to take is the crappy. state. Yeah. Oof, anytime you get pushed into having to take some sort of state option. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So there's a lot of like landowners who are like sour about that, understandably. Mm-hmm. But hmm. you know, and this is where things just end up just falling down these like political lines, you know. And it's it's like, okay, well, just because you're, you know, you are on the red team and you lost your insurance. That doesn't mean the insurance is on the blue team. It just, you know what I mean? Like there's a lot of that that I think people fall into. That's really unproductive. I also, I Um, love the poetic parallel in like metaphorically they're left high and dry. And also in the wooey, mm -hmm. they are literally high and dry. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. And a flame. And a high (laughs) fire risk. (laughs) Right. But yeah, part of that, part of that too, you guys pointed out is like, I remember when my family lived in the middle of nowhere, like we were 30 minutes from the nearest gas station in Laurel, right? Yeah, that was up uh, up uh, Buffalo, Buffalo Trail, Run? Chief Brave Wolf. Buffalo yeah. Trail. Um, so like we were way up there on Clapper Flat and uh, like, I don't, it was pretty often in the summer we were out like cutting down trees, doing like burn piles of their of the trimmings basically. And then we would like round up the, the trunks and split them over the winter for our wood burning stove and all that. And like Mm -hmm. the main driver was, Hey, Oh, on the whiskey bench, take a shot for personal responsibility. I was literally just going to say this ties into personal responsibility, (laughs) being a steward of your land, (laughs) care of your land and understanding the risks to your home. Like, Yes, it's beautiful to have that really nice tree like right outside your window providing you all sorts of shade. But when that thing burns down and possibly falls over, where does it go? Oh yeah, it's tipping right. toward the right. home. You know like the the idea of not even wanting to t- take the responsibility of like understanding fire behavior and knowing what would protect your home best. Right, exactly. Totally. And that's, you know, here's a antidote I was just helping do some logging and land management up at a friend's cabin. And they've had this cabin for a long time. And with all the fires going on in the crazies, they've seeked uh, wisdom from people that know what's going on on how to protect their property. Mm -hmm. 
They've got a beautiful little cabin. It's got metal siding. It's got a metal roof. Um, and they have been working very hard the last couple of years to clear a hundred yards in every direction from any building. That is, mm, yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, it takes a lot of hard work. And they've got a cool situation where they're like, hey, we've got this great land. It's good for recreation. It's good for um, hunting. Anyone that wants to come help us, like you give us a weekend of work and we'll give you a weekend up here to play or hunt. And, and so there's people there all the time helping clear. Yeah, it's right? awesome. And get wood and where the house is mm. beautiful. It was all dense, overgrown forest, and they've cleared it over the years, and it's this beautiful meadow. They kept the, they kept the aspen trees, right? So there's these beautiful groves of aspens and just meadow. I love that. And it took years and years of healing and growing after it was all cleared. Sure. And now, further up, they're continuing to, to thin. But we spent two days there, and four of us, like, I don't know, I probably fell like 12 trees. We all chainsawed. Yeah, dude. We cut like a few cord of wood. And, you know, we had a tractor with a stump grinder, but like in two days we made like no progress. Yeah, it's a ton of work. It's a ton of work. Also, people have to have that understanding. And I don't know how you get that understanding. Well, something. Unless someone shows it to you. I didn't know until someone showed it to me. Something to put that into perspective. So when we talk about this on a more national scale. Mm -hmm. The Forest Service manages 193 million acres Mm -hmm. of land in the United States. And frankly, like the bulk of the responsibility for managing like public forest land falls on the Forest Service. And they reported that they have a backlog of forest that needs restoration of 80 million acres. Mm -hmm. 63 million acres of that is at high risk of wildfire by their assessment. And at the, let's see, so from two, I have an anecdote here, from 2009 to 2018, they were doing forest restoration work uh, to reduce fire risk and improve forest health. And they, during that time, from 2009 to 2018, they clear, restored less than 4 million acres per year. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did fuel reduction projects on only 1.4 million acres per year. So, like, at that pace, it will take decades to address the backlog, right? Not to mention the backlog that will build during the time that they're addressing it. And the other thing, too, is, like, a lot of that area is accessible with machinery and things like Mm -hmm. that. A lot of it isn't. A lot of it isn't. Um, A lot of it is on, if we're talking about indigenous peoples, a lot of it is on uh, land that is, I mean, historically sacred land. And they're working with tribal groups. Right. And working with them, a lot of them, they don't want any sort of machinery on their holy land. Right. And so you have to work around that. And so that that I mean, well, a lot of tribes are obvi- like, as we discussed, familiar mm-hmm. with. And yeah, open exactly. To and so it it takes manpower. Right. Yeah. If, if a group of people have a sacred land and they don't want machinery on it. OK, do it by hand. But it takes a lot of energy and resources. Yeah. And right. but. You know, you have to start, right? And so I'm just I'm just spitballing here now. At what point does something like this become some sort of national emergency? And like we get the National Guard to help. Well, okay, so that's actually a great transition. Oh, is it? Okay. <laughs> I'm just like, other huh, if only there was a group of people that are employed that could help. So there's like, National Guard. <laughs> there's this really cool Love you guys, by the way. Market tool 
that was uh, spearheaded in 2018 by a group called Blue Forest. They used to be known as Blue Forest Conservation, and they've like tightened up their name. Blue names. Forest? They, they didn't blue go forest. Green Forest? No, Blue, blue Forest. <laughs> and, and the World Resources Institute, they teamed up to create what's known as a forest resilience bond. And it's this brilliant financial tool. And basically how it works is private investors, such as like an insurance company or impact investment firm, puts up the money, um, funds the bond, and then beneficiaries of forest restoration like a state like the state of california or a utility company agree to pay the investors back once the benefits of that restoration work is actually realized right um and so basically like this financing structure allows local governments utilities private businesses to essentially like borrow against future benefits um that they will receive from having healthier forests and like less wildfire. Um, and so this whole model has allowed restoration projects to go forward that, um, that the forest service just like, well, isn't able to get to. And so one example, this was piloted in the Tahoe national forest in California. And, so the state of California and the Yuba Water Agency, which is a utility company, signed the contract agreeing to pay back the bond. The Yuba Water Agency obviously has an interest in, in this because if a wildfire burns through their watershed, that can, you know, disrupt water quality. And that's a problem for them. Right. So mm -hmm. they have an incentive. Right. And so so the Forest Resilience Bond raised four million dollars from four different investors and they restored the project size was 15,000 acres. Um, so this was like a small pilot mm -hmm. project, but they're doing more. And so and one of the investors was an insurance company, which like that also makes sense because the insurers want to make sure that their insured properties don't burn down. Right. So they have an incentive to pay into this sort of thing. Um, and so they've been working on that for the last several years. Um, and the forest service estimates that the, uh, that the forest resilience bond will allow the project to be completed in only four years. And their estimate, the forest service estimate for how long it would take to do that project was 10 to 12 years. <laughs> so like, that's a, that's a huge difference that's there, huge. right? That's like a, over 50% like increase. And so, so that's like a really, really cool market tool where, and that's a public private partnership, right? Mm -hmm. That isn't like, rescinding all environmental regulation allowing loggers to just like destroy a forest or something this is like very focused very tailored to the region it's private capital mixed with like private know-how and and government know-how right like the agencies are helping oversee the project mm -hmm. um but it's helping just expedite the whole thing and this is interesting too like talking about a, a public private coalition kind of deal there is massive incentive for the individual and for the private sector to address this. And I can't see any incentive for federal level to dig their heels in and address it. Other than pressure from the public and the private sector. I mean, it's the. Yeah, the Forest Service, it's their responsibility, right? And like their mission. But they've been spread thin over the last mm -hmm. several decades because they're increasingly their their budgets are focused on suppression and firefighting right 
rather than proactive management. And meanwhile, this backlog builds and builds and builds and like they can't catch up. Right. right? And, and, it, is, and, and it isn't just a matter of like mm-hmm. us appropriating more money to give to the Forest Service. Like there's literally it's a lack of resources across the board. And frankly, there's also a ton of regulatory barriers there's Mm -hmm. litigation issues because there are a lot of environmental groups still that have not accepted this reality and like just sue they like the uh, bozeman (laughs) municipal watershed project which has like been ongoing for years they've been trying to restore the forest around our watershed for obvious reasons if that burns a lot of people are screwed right this whole community this whole valley is is that's a huge problem right um we saw it in bridger canyon Right, exactly, right. And like this, and that project has been stalled repeatedly by litigation. And it's finally starting to go through to actually be, the work is starting to be done. Mm -hmm. But that's, it's taken like a decade, right? And so like, if that's our process, like we're never going to get ahead of this problem, right? you know? It takes determined, passionate people. So props to those people that have been fighting for a decade. Yeah, for sure. To, and I think to make something happen. You know? I think it's cool, too, that like there's private capital. I would rather have private capital paying for this stuff than my tax dollars going to an agency that's getting like thwarted at every turn. Right. And like yeah. and, and to be fair, like this, uh, the forest resilience bond pilot project in the Tahoe National Forest was they picked a shovel ready project because the whole like the the process of going through like. NEPA reviews takes a really long time and and so there's still a lot of regulation and red tape that delays these projects that like they're subject to as well but but once you get through those hurdles having this private capital and like additional resources it vastly expedites like the pace and scale of getting these projects done um one of the regulatory hurdles that I think is interesting and and worth sharing and to me it's like a total no-brainer that we should fix this and it would help solve the problem on the margins. Uh, so uh, the Clean Air Act essentially <laughs> mandates mm-hmm. that the smoke from prescribed burns are counted in state emission calculations, but the smoke from a wildfire is not counted. Yep. The stats on this are insane. It's insane. And so in California, for example, again, uh, like, what do they call them? Burn masters, right? Yep. Burn yep. masters are... It's 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 a lengthy, complicated process to like get a burn approved, right? And for understandable reasons, but to, it's the process has been exacerbated by like counterintuitive regulation like this, and and it's it's really counterintuitive because having a lower intensity controlled burn now prevents a larger fire later, and the larger fire emits more pollution and more carbon than the low intensity fire does right by the stats that i saw in that video specifically it was hundredfold no i'm sorry tenfold it's it's bad yeah it's really bad yeah so Um, like a prescribed fire i think the example was like a prescribed fire to manage something for one specific just one specific burn would have they predicted i think uh emitted like 30 million tons or something whereas not managing it and then that area burning ended up producing like 300 million tons of emissions but it's not counted for the state's emission right a study by advancing earth and space science found that wildfire smoke contains three times more pollution than smoke from a prescribed Mm -hmm. burn 
Um, so yeah, that goes to your point that right. it's, and it's, it's just on just, a larger it, scale. And it's worse air, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oof. So these are some of the things that are like, I suppose, well-intentioned, but are. What's the saying? The road to hell is paved with, with good, good intentions. intentions. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, that's the story of government. So anyway, so that's, yeah. Like, so this is one of those things where it's like, we have to change this because if we do change this, this will allow burn masters, which who aren't like that names maybe sounds like That's scary. Not, I think that sounds awesome. I want to be a burn master. <laughs> they're like certified, well-trained, like fire and forest, like ecologists, like, yeah. you know, right. And they work with the state and, um, but it would allow them to increase the pace and scale of this desperately needed restoration work. Um, and, and, by this kind of counterintuitive regulation, like not only does it slow that progress, but it also the reality is like we're emitting more carbon by having these, you know, fires that burn nine hundred thousand acres in a summer. And right. that's like one of dozens of fires. Right. Which like, is then counterproductive looping it all the way back to the beginning, which is then counterproductive to the global warming issue. Right. Issue. It makes it worse. Yeah, exactly. Right. So it's kind of this um, vicious cycle. And, you know. I don't know how you would even begin to calculate it, but even fighting wildfires, helicopters, planes, ground crews, trucks, yeah, uh, there's support carbon. camps. I mean, massive impact just from a fighting standpoint. Totally. Um, totally. And and like you mentioned, it's just something that can't be tackled by the Forest Service alone. No, they're busy. They're honestly, underwater. They can't. They're honestly they're busy fighting fires, right? So you need they they would I would assume have to basically double their manpower because it's a full time effort to clear and and everything like that. Sure, yeah. And it takes a lot of again federal a federal approach to it just doesn't work because you have to work with individual communities. Like how do you you know it's a it's a big thing, but like how does how does Bozeman Montana tackle the forest in this area? How does Columbus tackle the forest in their area? How does Billings tackle the surrounding areas? Like, figure out a way to to work with communities and and tackle it one little chunk at a time, potentially. Yeah, you um, need it gets tailored. harder when you start getting into big plots of national forest and things like that. Obviously, sure, sure. Mm. But yeah, I think localized solutions make sense, and mm -hmm. I think certainly in terms of like raising the capital to get these projects done, like local interest is what is going to drive that, mm -hmm. right? So another thing that I want to mention that is just a good example of like how this forest restoration works. One of the bigger fires this summer was in Oregon. Um, and it was called the bootleg fire and that burned like over 600 square miles. Um, and it's been contained, but it was like raging in July that fire. The, there were a couple news articles about this because it's kind of funny how the media is slowly waking up to like this reality that people who study this stuff have known for a while, you know, now it's finally like in vogue to like talk about it. And anyway, but anyway, so there are a couple of news articles about this fire, but when the fire moved into this area called the Saican Marsh Preserve, which had been thinned and restored uh, like the year prior, the nature of the fire changed. Mm -hmm. It went because when 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 a fire's in these really dense forests, it's it moves up into the tops of the trees and it right. spreads more rapidly. Exactly. And so when it got into this preserve that had been restored, the fire dropped back down to the ground mm -hmm. floor and and it it decreased in intensity and it made it more manageable for the firefighters to to control right and 
Um, and it was this great example. Everyone realized like, oh, shit, look at that. That worked. That did the thing we've been talking about, like and, and fire ecologists knew and forest ecologists like knew that would happen. But but other people realized like, holy moly, like this, this isn't mm-hmm. hogwash. This is true, you know. Um, and so, so anyway, that was kind of a cool example, like in real time this summer with a massive fire. And everybody observed like the nature of the fire change because it had less fuel to consume. Um, yeah, and so. well, exactly. And just talking about less fuel, even even if you're talking about um, potentially mismanaged forests, even thinned, not even necessarily the um, I don't know what you would call it, the bottom forest floor. Well, yeah, the forest floor, all of that stuff. Even if you're just talking trees, just thinning has massive benefits um, in and of itself because like creating a fire line, you know, generally firefighters are coming in, they're felling trees opposite the direction of where the fire's coming from. Mm-hmm. But when you have these closely packed forests, that's not enough. Whereas if you have more natural spreading fire, it's a lot easier to fell just a handful of trees along your line of defense and then the canopies won't ignite across, right? So you're making a fairly narrow, a lot of times they're 10 feet wide, these defense lines. But yeah, so the that, flames can't jump. Right, but when you're talking about dense forests, you can't quickly enough fell that many trees right. to create that line of defense. Right. Um, well, and that's also a problem in a lot of places where like roadless rules have been implemented. Mm-hmm. There's a ton of areas like that in in California where like, you know, nobody's nobody's managed in the Santa Cruz Mountains where I'm from. Like there's all... sadly i have family living there and part of it burned a couple years ago and frankly like all of it is going to burn at some point which Mm -hmm. is sad but i mean there there are roads you drive through there that seem beautiful right and you have the big canopy overhead and but you you when you look at it from the perspective of thinking about wildfire you realize like this will be a fucking inferno and you won't ever be you won't be able to get out you Mm -hmm. know because like there's so much fuel on the sides of the roads and hanging over the road that there, you know, there's no way if that goes up in flames, there's no way to get through that. And that's happened to communities, you know? And so there's a lot of, again, it's this cultural thing where it's like that we've, we've come to think that that's healthy and like environmentally friendly and like the right way for a forest to look one dense forests aren't actually healthy. And two in the wooey, if people are, are going to live there, Again, I don't think there's like a moral way or like just an ethical way to make people not live in the wooey, right? I don't think that's mm-hmm. a real option. So if they're going to be there, then like we have to take practical steps to make it livable, right? And that's just it. And like at some point you have to find this balance of like people are going to live where they want to live, right? I don't think you should compel them not to with force. <laughs> you yeah. can try and compel them with, you know, an ar- good argument. People are incredibly valuable, so you have to find a way to protect them if they're going to make that decision. But, like, you can't also not cut down trees. It's like this, like you're saying, like, clear around the roads. Like, there's a balance between, like, we want healthy forests, but, like, a healthy forest isn't necessarily more valuable than human safety. Like, well, and a, health, and a healthy it forest isn't, isn't, right? isn't an overgrown forest, right? Right, like, exactly. That's my point. Is right, like we, exactly. We have this misperception about what a healthy forest is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also like a lot of the wooey isn't in places like California or like Bridger Canyon. You know, I mean, there's like a lot of people living there. We're not just we're not talking about like the boondocks. Like we're talking right. about like 
like thousands of homes, you mm-hmm. know, in the hillside where my brother lives in Corte Madera, which is this gorgeous, ridiculous California community north of San Francisco across from the Golden Gate Bridge. It's spectacular. And he lives on this hillside that's just like peppered with beautiful homes. You know, every home's like two plus million, you know, it's, it's all spectacular. And and there's these big oaks and eucalyptus and cypress and, you know, or maybe not cypress, but um, bay laurel. And um, it's densely wooded. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was when my brother moved there, he bought a home there like a couple years ago now, two years ago. And when my father and I went to visit, we were talking about it. And my dad pointed out like when he was a kid in the 50s and 60s, that whole area was grassland. It was all grassy and it's been um, or maybe a little before then, but it, it turn of the 20th century. It was all like that hillside was all grass mm-hmm. and and it's been it's transformed into a wooded area. And now people who live there, like when my brother bought that home, the woman who had lived there refused to touch anything on the property. And I mean, it's a fucking tinderbox like mm-hmm. it, it's dry there already. And. You know, when you have like a foot or more of dead oak leaves on the floor of your property and like overgrown trees hanging over your home. And I mean, it. I mean, really, like, honestly, it's that area will probably burn, too. And it's will be a scary thing when that does. But uh, but we have this. But people who live there maybe don't realize that, like, this is an artificial like humans impact on nature is constant and has been happening for a very long time, right? Like, I don't think we are a part of nature. I think this idea, this mo- I think there's kind of this modern take that like humans are somehow separate from nature and we, exactly. we only impose like harm. And the reality is much of the landscapes that we look at today and say like, that's pristine nature and we need to freeze it and keep it like that. Mm-hmm. That's been shaped by humans centuries before us, right? And, um, you know, indigenous peoples here changed entire landscapes using fire and other techniques, right? right? right. For and the betterment of the land for, and sure. for themselves, right? There's a mutual. Right, right. Well, and also, like, what is. I mean, we've been talking about like a healthy forest versus an overgrown forest. And we we objectively say like, well, it's healthy because there's less tree mortality or there's less disease or there's less invasive species. And I think that's fair. But ultimately, like. That's. A subjective thing, right? Like that, like really big picture us saying what is healthy, that's we're determining that through like our human lens. Mm hmm. Right. Like there's, you know, there were iterations of this earth that were completely inhospitable to modern life. And who's to say that was like not optimal. Right. That's subjective. It was not optimal for me to live and like live the life I want to live, but it was optimal for other species that don't exist any longer. Right. So like I think to some degree I'm going off on a tangent here, but like to some degree, I think it's important to recognize that like what is like an optimal natural state mm-hmm. is sort of a human construct. Uh, specifically, I would say more of a Western construct. Just in general. And it's mm-hmm. like trying to kind of understand, you know, 
like you just said, the relationship between mankind and the earth and yeah, and how do you be a good steward of that and what makes sense and like, you know, we don't want to force the burn because like, ooh, ugly burn. Like there's beautiful new life that comes out of that. And, right. And like, it has to be a shift, right? Uh, we have our idea of, you know, the beautiful green yard and the dense, thick forest Ugh, and all that stuff. Don't but, even get yeah. me started it, on yeah, lawns again. It doesn't. Yeah, yeah, ex- <laughs> yeah exactly. Exactly, exactly though, but right? Yeah. It's a, it's a foolish endeavor, perhaps, to oh, wow. say that man alone should control. Yeah, well, I feel like, I've, <laughs> I feel like it is works, kind of right? a, a mm-hmm. natural conclusion, um, you know, just to the propagation of our species, right? Like, anthropocentric attitudes is, of course, natural to us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, sure. But sure. yeah, the... The the minds that are capable of the both end of like, yeah, it might not be like the most Instagram worthy aesthetic property, right? <laughs> but also it won't burn down and I'm making the firefighter's job a lot easier if the fire does head this way, you know? Hmm. Right. Or the fire can come through and do its thing and I can also still live here. Totally. You know what I mean? Right. Or how are you going to propagate... You know, again, it's having this bigger mindset. It's well, like, also, okay, it's beautiful now, but how about my children or my children's yeah. children? Like, is this yeah. forest going to stay healthy? Well, is there still going to be even on a short term natural species? Even on there? a short term basis, mm-hmm. like I think of the way, like a, a mountain wildfire, like the next year, you can go out and like you'll see, like you, it, it's impossible to miss huckleberries, right? Because like. Yeah, totally. Right. Mushrooms, because they grow the, exactly. out of that like dense, nutrient-rich ash that is left behind, which then the ecosystem is built for. Huckleberries go crazy. So do bears. Bears come in, like leave their droppings, fertilize even more, and like the cycle keeps going, right? Right. But yeah, if it's not Instagram and perfect, the cycle will keep going. if it's blackened for, God right. forbid, a few months before it's covered with snow... <laughs> see and i just think a cute little bear i mean a cute giant bear <laughs> munching on some huckleberries and you know dropping a big old turd in the middle of the of the meadow is that's instagram right perfect there. <laughs> like, that's beautiful totally. that's what it is that's real dang <laughs> pretty good oh boy love it um real quick plug before we close not a plug for me even um, Montana Public Radio did a fantastic seven-part series called Fireline this last summer. Um, it's a great mm-hmm. uh, podcast series. I think every episode is like about a half an hour long. Um, some great reporting, some great conversations, and a lot of a lot of the things were echoed tonight here on the Whiskey Bench. And um, yeah, go listen to Public Radio, I guess, <laughs> and that show specifically. It was great. I'll do a shameless plug. Go to perk.org forward slash forest. Nice. And you can see our report. You should say it's perk is P E R C. Sweet. P E R C. Property and Environment Research Center. Well, 40 and- year old Bozeman Native Conservation Org. So. Excellent. Hey, that's awesome. It's pretty good. We're locals. Uh, also, Kat wrote an article recently, what, like three weeks ago? Two yeah. weeks ago. Uh, yeah, something like that. Three uh, weeks ago, I think. Two weeks ago. Concerning wildfire mm-hmm. and uh, global warming. Um, 
adding a bit of nuance to the conversation. Yep. And so that one's also on the perk website. Check it out. It's a good read. (laughs) Excellent. Well, my goodness, Kat, thank you for doing your research so well. I'm, I'm always amazed and I learn a lot from you. Cool. This was fun. Thanks for letting me. Absolutely. (laughs) The thing is people need, like, there are so many interesting things and you might not like necessarily think, Oh, wildfires, maybe they don't affect you. And there's a lot of people at wildfires. Wildfires may not affect you directly, but like these are very interesting things and it's part of how the world works and the part of the world that you live in. And so it was fun to dive into these little short conversations and, and I think especially dive in, like learn more about it if you don't, if it doesn't affect you, because there's a lot of, um, a lot of our public discourse about this issue lacks nuance. And I think if you don't, I think people who, who live in the region where it happens have more of the context to understand mm-hmm. the nuance and other people who don't simply, you know, don't have access to that information. And so like seek it out and learn a little bit more because there's probably more to it than like the soundbite on Twitter, you know? So definitely cheers to that. I would agree. Cheers. Thank you for joining us on the whiskey bench. If you would do us a favor, please tell a friend about the show in person with a text or by sharing about it on social media. You can join us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Pinterest, all at Whiskey Bench Pod. And don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Remember, always drink responsibly. And cheers to a fulfilled life with all its beauty. Welcome to the Into Podcast, where we seek to insight, insight, pursuing truth for the sake of wonder. Meet my parents. That's, That's us. us. I'm Pops. I'm the cotton candy queen. My wife, Katie. Hello. My best friend, Kevin. Am I the best friend or the wife? And me, Alex. Hey. Join us to have an honest and encouraging conversation about whatever it is that we're into. Highline Media Network. Normal people in normal places.